Welcome to the Wilds cast. In this episode, Rabbi Wilds speaks with Sari Singer. In life, sadly, they're victims of heinous acts of violence. Some stay victims their whole lives, broken and battered, while a few select people, like our guest today, are able to take a horrible trauma that happened to them and turn it around to do good in the world. It was a great conversation. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Okay, we are live. <laughs> uh, welcome, Sari, and welcome all to the Wildcast MGE's podcast. I have the great uh, honor of uh, introducing someone I've known and honored to know for many, many years, consider Sari a friend. Uh, you know, in life, um, sadly, there are victims of acts of violence, um, and some people, unfortunately, stay victims their whole lives. Um, but our guest today has been able to take a very difficult trauma and turn it around to do something pretty extraordinary for the world. A Manhattan resident, Sari Singer, is one of those rare people. She's the founder of Strength to Strength and has worked with her organization to help victims of terror throughout the world to cope psychologically with what has happened to them. Sari recently spoke at a rally against anti-Semitism that I and many others attended in response to the uh, spike of violence, um, hate crimes here in New York City. She's addressed many groups on the topic of terrorism, um, at the United Nations, she's spoken as well, and one of her speeches for Hadassah was entitled Practical Zionism, What Surviving Terror Teaches You. Um, Sarah, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, good. Just want to make sure I got a little weird thing coming in over here, but I want to make sure you're not listening to it. <laughs> um, and I'm told, Sarah, that this past Friday was 18 years to the day um, that you experienced that, that terrible, terrible trauma in your life. Um 18 years ago, Sari got on a bus in Israel, a Hamas suicide bomber detonating um, a, a device. Scores of people were killed and injured. Sari was injured, still has shrapnel in her leg, uh, but survived and went on to fight terrorism in a very, very special and unique way. Uh, it's not uncommon for her to be up late at night uh, fielding phone calls with victims of terror, Jew and non-Jewish alike. She relentlessly looks out for the interests of those who have suffered acts of terrorism. And unfortunately, there are many. She's from Lakewood, New Jersey. She's actually the daughter of New Jersey State Senator Robert Singer, has spoken to audiences throughout the globe. She's appeared on CNN, Fox News, numerous radio stations. And it is an honor, Sari Singer, to have you with us today. Thanks for joining. Thanks very well. It's an honor to be here with you. Um, before we get to your personal story, I... Yeah. Many are shocked by the recent anti-Semitic attacks that we're seeing in New York City. Were you surprised? And um, and how do you characterize these acts of violence? I mean, do you do you consider them terrorism or are they just hate crimes? Uh, tell us your thoughts about what's happening now. So it's interesting you bring this up because I've been talking about this a lot lately with people because I do have my own thinking on on what happens with regard to these hate crimes. Um, am I surprised about what's going on? Not at all. If our if our elected politicians can compare the U.S. and Israel to terrorist organizations like Hamas and the Taliban, why would it not be the next steps and even the the beginning steps of people to be 
to be hurting and going on the streets and really just beating up and doing whatever they feel to anyone they see that's a Jew. And we're seeing this not only in the United States, we're seeing this globally, where, where in London there were, there were protests and people you know, screaming out loud on loudspeakers, rape their daughters, kill the Jews. I mean, these things have become acceptable in our society, in a society where they should be unacceptable. And I think that they're within the U.S., it's a little bit of a different case because, first of all, most hate crimes are not um, are actually not reported, especially in the Jewish community. And second of all, you know, when you look at hate crimes, and I, I give this example, and I spoke at a, at a on a panel. Um, I was honored to speak on this panel about hate in Englewood, New Jersey, right before COVID actually started. And I, I gave the scenario. I said, um, a gunman walks into a kosher supermarket in Jersey City. He shoots a few people, and it's a hate crime. A gunman walks into the hypercaché kosher supermarket in Paris, France. He shoots a few people, and it's a terrorist attack. Gunman walks into the Poway Synagogue. The Chabad Synagogue in Poway, California, it's a hate crime. Gunman walks into a mosque in New Zealand, it's a terrorist attack. So the fact that there is no one global definition of this is a big problem in itself. The fact mm-hmm. that you're in the U.S., I feel like when we say it's a hate crime, it minimizes mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. level of what we're talking about. And really, on a bigger scale for myself, I believe that this is a human rights issue. These are a violation of our human rights as Jews that we do not feel safe in our own country walking the streets for the sake that somebody might come up to us because we're either somebody's wearing a yarmulke or somebody's wearing a Jewish star or you look Jewish or something about you and they ask you, are you Jewish? And then they have the right to just hit you or assault you or anything of the above. Um, and this is something really for our elected officials to take on and to really make it a priority to stop this from happening. And instead of seeing that, I see our elected officials just sort of not even commenting so much. I know that there are a number of Democrats that condemned the comments that Elon Omar made about comparing the U.S. and Israel to terrorist organizations, but that's not enough. If you are representing this country, an elected official, to, to say a comment like that, it, there is no room for that in, in our world here in in our country. And they're able to do that without any accountability and any consequences. And that I have a tremendous problem with. And and and, and what, why do you think that it has become acceptable? Because, I, you know, I very much agreed with your response. And not only that, but it seems like this, you know, alternative uh, narrative that the world and a lot of the Hollywood celebrities seem to be accepting. Why has this, why has anti-Semitism become a little more of an acceptable form of hate in this country when there's so many prominent Jews in Hollywood, in politics, in law, medicine, science. Why do you think that's happened here? Is it because Israel is just seen as a you know colonial imperial power? People are just evaluating who, who's who's dying more, and since more Palestinians die in these attacks, sure. um, you know, what, what do you attribute it to? 
First, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about what's really happening. And instead of blaming Hamas, which is the terrorist organization, you know, Israel is blamed. I believe that part of that problem is social media and the way information can be spread very quickly. And just because it's online doesn't mean that it's true, Mm -hmm. that there is no accountability for for Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all these social media platforms and stopping some of these hate hate comments and also some of the things that are going on that are really perpetuating the violence. Um, and we and we saw that in 2015 when there was a heightened level of attacks right. in Israel with knives and and the, there were there were groups on Facebook showing Palestinians how to kill Israelis. I mean, this was something real. And Facebook, there's they were still up there. Many of the groups, when I go on and I report them, I'm told they don't they don't violate any of Facebook standards. And I think that. Those things need to be taken more seriously. I also think that the word anti-Semitism has has fallen on deaf ears. The longer we move away, unfortunately, from the Holocaust and from and from that that message, you know, the never again message is not only it's not only never again for Jews, never again for everybody who has been impacted by any type of genocide, um, you know, in the world. And and I think that it. it we, we've lost that in the sense of uh, this discussion that we can't articulate how important it is for us to be combating this. Um, and so, and, and, what, and what do you, let me just stop you there. What do you yes. think the best way, if, if you say the cause is misinformation and that there's just no fact checking when people post, because um, it's not just on social media. You, I mean, yes. you know that, that some major networks are, are sharing the same, um, narrative or or you know here's one a very specific example that bothers me i'm a student of history so i study a lot of modern day israeli history and um when they talk about the israel arab war it's talking about the six-day war so when israel captured the following territories in the six now it's true israel captured the sinai the sinai peninsula the west bank the gaza strip the golan heights but if you just say it like that then it looks as though some sort of imperial power just, you know, you took more property from another indigenous population. Uh, how many people are aware of the fact that there were 465,000 troops amassed on, on all of Israel's borders? And had Israel not struck preemptively, Israel wouldn't exist. Correct. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you fix that? How do you get the world to hear that? I mean, the bigger problem is you're talking about 1967. You know, people think that before 1948 there were no Jew- there were no Jews in Israel, and that's just not true. Um, I have a I have a family member who actually moved to Israel in 1909 and was murdered in the Jaffa riots in 1921. Right. You know, right. so so Jews were living. There's this there's this there's this narrative that has been transformed that people believe that the, that all of a sudden in 1948, the Jews just showed up in Israel and took over the land from, you know, the Arabs that were living there. That's not the case at all. And I again, I think it's it's this this narrative that's being told that that has a lot of misinformation. Do I have the answer to that I think it really it really starts with not only it starts in our community. It starts with with the leaders in our community educating the public and making it a priority to send the right narrative out there of the truths of what of what really is the history. Um, I think that to me is very important. And unfortunately, I I don't see the leadership doing that. I I see it falling sometimes on deaf ears. And you know, I, there was just an article that Daniel Greenfeld just um, just 
just published and I posted it on Facebook and it really resonated with me because I've been saying this for years to Israeli politicians. We need to start taking hold of the narrative in Israel around the world instead of letting others speak our narrative because it's not true. And so what they're speaking is misinformation. And and even though Israel wants to focus on all the positive things that Israel is, which it is, beautiful country, startup nation, technology, um, science, you know, everything comes out of Israel, whether people want to acknowledge it or not. But we also have to acknowledge that the struggles that Israel has gone through over the years since it became, you know, since it was recognized by the UN in 1948, there are struggles, there are victims of terrorism. You can't shy away from that. There are victims all over the world that are dealing with it. Israel is no different. And if we shy away from those narratives, we're outside the, the scope of what's really going on. And when yeah. I speak internationally, a lot of times overseas in Europe, I'm the only Jew in the room. It's almost like, the, the Jews in the places where I'm speaking don't even exist, even if they've experienced terrorism. We need to be at the table. We need to be in the discussions. And the only way to do that is to share the narrative, the good and the bad. And while terrorism is a horrible thing, you know, Israel has a right to defend its citizens, just like any other country does. But we need to share that narrative that, that the people of Israel str- are struggling just like everybody else that are impacted by terrorism. Yeah. Uh, and what, what would you tell people then? who are concerned about um, publicly wearing their quote, their mugging Davids. Um, I was just, um, we're having our annual dinner at MGE tomorrow night. I was going through all the things that we did. I couldn't even believe we had almost 400 MG participants davening on the streets of Manhattan. Can you imagine right now? People, people were concerned to go to that rally that you spoke at. Uh, I, it felt great, by the way, and I, I thought the NYPD did an amazing job in protecting us. We had CSS, and, and but it was great. I was not nervous at all, and I don't think any of the 400 participants who came to the three different locations and were literally visible. We were targets if somebody wanted to, God forbid, do something. But now it's a couple of months later, many months later, and, and people are like, you know, I got into this conversation with my son. You know, we wear kipotes. You know, my, my wife was like, put on a cap. Um, I gave him my tripod for my camera. I'm like, carry this around. What what would you say? I think that we can't be afraid. I think that we have to, we have to live our lives just like, you know, I can't be afraid to do certain things because of what happened to me. We need to push forward and move forward. I do think that, that it's normal to be afraid. Absolutely. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's not, I mean, even in certain places in Europe, you know, people I know will wear a baseball cap, you know, just because they don't want to be, they don't want to show that right. just in case. Right. So I, I think that, that sometimes that fear is real, but I also think that there's power in numbers and that if we, if we stay strong together, that we, we could really, you know, help unify that. But I think it's more than that. I think that the, the police, the elected officials, they need to help make sure that we feel safer. It's not about only we going out there as Jews and, and, and outwardly showing it so that we're not afraid. It has to be that every, everyone is working with us in the community. I think sometimes I feel like, you know, um, you know, especially when, you know, when one of the young boys who who was hurt and the guy was let out of jail the next day and he said, you know, I do it again. Well, then you just let out somebody that's going to do, that's going to carry out another attack against an innocent human being. And I think there needs to be more, you know, there needs to be something set up, some parameters set up around that 
with the within government to stop those things from happening. Yeah, and I'm, I'm I appreciate you raising that issue about the, the the guy who beat up a Jewish kid and then just was proud of it, said he would do it again. They released him. I think it's important for the Jewish community to take note of the silence of some of our politicians. Uh, because those same individuals will come will come knocking on our door. They'll call me Correct. before election time and try to have a meeting. I, I can't even tell you how many phone calls I got from people running for office. MGE is apolitical. But, you know, they want to be able to sort of get in a little. Um, and I and I want to invite them and I want them to have a, a, a place at the table. And, and I want our participants to be able to hear what they have to say. But not if they're going to keep quiet. Right. When they're vo- when they're vocal about other ethnicities uh, who are subject to hate hate crimes, and then they're quiet when when Jews get beat up in the streets. And I I just hope the Jewish community is going to learn a little from this. Um, that unfortunately this stuff happens here; it can happen anywhere. And uh, to take note about who is speaking out, who is not. I you agree with one hundred percent. You know, let, let's let's go to your story if it's okay. Tell us what took place. This is a long time ago, eighteen years. Um, how did you go? Why did you go to Israel for that trip in the first place? So I worked a few blocks from the World Trade Center and on 9-11, I overslept and I wasn't in my office. So we couldn't go to work for probably for a number of weeks. And when I did return to the office, my subway stop was completely destroyed. And I had to, we had to, most of the stops you couldn't get to, you had to get off of Chamber yeah. Street and walk downtown. And I remember the first week walking downtown and you could still smell the smells of, of burning. And there were people, as I walked up to Wall Street, which was about a block from my office, I saw lines of people just waiting. And I didn't know what was going on. They were blocking the sidewalk. About the fourth day, I tapped somebody on the shoulder and I said, I've been coming to work every day this week. What are you guys doing here? And he was like, oh, we're here to take a picture of the world where the World Trade Center used to stand. And I thought, like, people oh are still gosh. looking for their loved ones. There's plastered downtown faces of people that didn't come home that day. I remember. And you're remember. here, it's like the Empire State Building of the Statue of Liberty. And I got angry. And so I felt like I needed to do something. I remember talking to a friend in Israel. And uh, basically in December of 2001, I quit my job. I led a birthright trip of 30 college students to Israel, and then I planned on staying on in Israel, and I began volunteering with organizations that were working with victims of terrorism. Wow. So that was the impetus of really wow. doing and, and you know giving back a little bit. I felt like if it could happen in New York, it can happen anywhere. I would want to be in Israel, if anything. And, and, and when this terrible thing happened, so you got on the bus and... There was an explosion, obviously. Um, I was meeting a friend for dinner. I got on the bus. um, And at that point when I got on, there were no empty seats and I was exhausted. We pulled up to Machane Yehuda, um, to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And the last two seats in the front section on the right side opened up. Normally, because it was Machane Yehuda and older people get on at the end of the day with a lot of packages, I would have taken the aisle seat. And I don't know why, but I ended up moving in next to the window, and mm-hmm. that saved my that saved my life. Um, as we as we started moving, and the bus, I remember the bus driver closing the door on people because people were trying to get in. It was packed. It was rushing. Yeah. Right. Um, I literally, 
as we started moving, I had my cell phone in my hands and I decided I wanted to put it in my knapsack. And, you know, I don't know if you remember the buses, the seats are so tight together. Yeah. And I remember yeah. my knapsack was on the floor. So I bent my head down. I opened my knapsack. And as I dropped my phone in and started to zip it up, I felt this huge shockwave hit me. Um, and I didn't think it was a terrorist attack. I thought that we had gotten into an accident. Right. Um, but, but the terrorists had boarded and detonated at that point. And the explosion had come from a different part of the bus? Was that it? it? No, the terrorist was actually two people standing away from me. So they approximated from the impact of the blast and the people that were killed that so the girl next to me didn't survive that sat down, her boyfriend that was standing, and the two rows in front of me, and they they assumed that the terrorist was standing next to the boyfriend. So he was literally two people away from me. So how did you survive? I mean it's a good question. I mean, the doctor the doctor said I was really lucky. I'll tell you that, you know, I remember a friend calling me in the hospital the next day and she said that she thought that, you know, that the people that were seated around me were protecting me for all the things, all the like things I've been involved in before I moved to Israel, all the chesed and all the care of organizations I've been involved in. And I remember like two hours later being on the phone with my rabbi and telling him what she said. And he said to me, Sarah, he said, No, he said, You never survive for what you did in the past you survive for what you're going to do in the future wow wow yeah, and i take that with me every day it's a famous story that um i forgot where i saw this of a woman praying desperately for the for the survival of her child who was deathly ill and the woman kept bringing up um you know in her tefillot in her prayers my son is this and my son is that and the rabbi was like no 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 what you want to emphasize is what your son hasn't done, what your son could do, what your son, please God, will be able to do if God spares his life. So I, I totally, I totally hear that. So, how did you then? Uh, how long were you in recovery for? So I was, I was, I went, I was taken immediately to Hadassah Hospital. I was the last person of the seriously wounded that night to go into surgery, and then I was in Hadassah for almost two weeks, a little mm -hmm. under two weeks. Um, and then instead of going back to the States with my family, I stayed on an extra five days because I didn't want to be afraid to come back. So a nurse would come to my apartment in the morning and help, you know, change my bandages and help me to get dressed. And then I was allowed out for about an hour a day. So every day for those five days, I did something different. And then the last day I walked with a friend of mine from King George up Yafo to where mm -hmm. the attack took place. Um, the area looked like didn't would have ne you would have never thought that anything had happened there except that there were candles and flowers. We said some to Hillam, and then that night I boarded a flight back to the states to recuperate for the summer. Um, that's that's incredible. You know, it reminds me. I mean, unfortunately, Israel's been through so much of this, and what is so powerful, and I I can't even. I guess I'm going to ask you this, Sari. Like, it's just unbelievable how Israel recovers so quickly. I remember in New York. Nine, I mean, nine eleven was so massive, but we still haven't fully recovered. Right. And there's some kind of resilience that that Israelis have. You seem to possess that, being able to, within a week of this attack, go back to the scene of the crime, so to speak, uh, not be afraid to board a plane, come back to America, and start the great work that you've been doing. But where where does that come from? I mean, I, I always say that, like. Everything I'm able to do is definitely what was instilled 
by my parents. And I think that a lot of it is definitely genetics. You know, the strength that we have and the abilities that we're able to handle things. It's also what past traumas, if you've had any, how you've dealt with it or haven't dealt with it, that can that can tell how you deal with things. And I just think that for me, I have, first of all, I have two very strong parents. They're amazing. Um, and they've always been you know, engaged and involved in doing in the community. And I think I just had a really uh, incredible support system of friends that were able not only here in the States, but my friends in Israel. Cause when I recuperated for the summer, I went back for another year. So I lived in Israel for a year after the attack and having my friends there and having also the victims that I, I had volunteered with. Now I understood exactly what they were talking about when they would share their stories that, um, that connection, that bond, I think is something that that definitely helped me tremendously in terms of not only the resilience, but being able to move forward and being able to, to realize what my potential is of what I'm supposed to be doing in helping others. You know, it's it's so inspiring listening to you because I've had the zuchut of the great honor of speaking and interviewing many Holocaust survivors over the year. Even during the pandemic, um, I interviewed last year and the year before um, and you speak to survivors, some of whom may have abandoned their Judaism because of what they saw, and some who strengthened, it somehow strengthened their belief. Um, what, what did surviving this attack do to you spiritually? I mean, you know, it's hard to say. I think that for me, spiritually, I didn't really... I don't think I changed that much after the attack with regard to, to some of uh, my religious beliefs, but I think what's really helped me and what's been amazing has been interacting with victims all over the world and knowing that there's such a respect. You know, I can, I've been to so many different countries um, where I've met victims from all different backgrounds, all different religions. And because we've been through terrorism, it bonds us for life that supersedes anything. And I think that for me has given me the ability to hold on. I mean, I can give you like example after example. I was I, two years ago before, again, before all the COVID stuff, but um, in 2000, in 2019, I think it was 2019. I'll hope it was 2019. <laughs> I did 2018. Um, I went, I flew to Northern Ireland. I was invited to the 20th anniversary. It was 2018, actually, now that I'm remembering, because it was 1998. So it was the 20 year anniversary of the Oma bombing in Northern Ireland. It was one of the largest attacks. And I'm very close with the, with the, with the heads of the organization. And they invited me to come for their anniversary. And I arrived on Friday morning. I remember I came back that week from Israel, I think on what, Tuesday or Wednesday, and then Thursday boarded a flight to go to Northern Ireland. And I arrived um, in Dublin and almost about three hours. And I didn't know what was happening. They took care of everything for me. I get there. And one of the victims' families picked me up from the airport wow. and drove three hours to get me and then drove three hours back to Dublin. And I just thought, how amazing are these people? And I got to the hotel and there's only one hotel in Oma. It's really small. And I get a phone call five minutes after checking into my room. And the woman says, the, the chef heard that you have certain dietary restrictions. He'd like to meet with you to see what he could do mm -hmm. to accommodate you. And 
time after time during this weekend that, you know, the organization set up a, a group to come and visit me Saturday at the hotel because they knew I can't drive. Friday night, the director of the organization came and sat with me to have dinner so I wouldn't be by myself. You know, these are little things, but they're huge in, in my mind. And then the greatest thing for me was, was Saturday night. I found out last minute that I was actually speaking at the anniversary ceremony with the dignitaries and to be there and sitting in a row of bishop after priest after wow. event, that, wow. and I said to the bishop next to me, I hear I'm the only Jew in Omaha. He said, you're probably the only Jew in about 250 miles. <laughs> but the respect that I got just from, from being there, and it doesn't matter to me what religion they are. Right. We're human beings. Our lives have been impacted by terrorism, and we're there for each other. And I think those, to me, are the things that really keep me in check. Uh, again, I've been to uh, you name it. When I when I was in Amsterdam, I, I wasn't near the Jewish community. When I've been in Paris at conferences or Madrid, you know, all these places, um, you know, uh, Colombia and Bogota. Everyone just takes care of you because you're you become a part of this extended family. And I have friends again in in all different countries and. In, in Belgium, in Pakistan, in Jordan, you know, it, it supersedes all these things. But I think that all of these people that have entered my life, and I always say they've become part of my family and I'll do anything for them. I think it also keeps me in check of where I am religiously in terms of what I want and, and, the, and the, the respect and the level that I want to send a message of who I am, not only as a human being, as a victim, but as a Jewish victim of Palestinian terrorism in Israel. Right. You know, I'm not just a victim anywhere else. I'm a victim of a terrorist attack in Israel. Right. And I want to be a representative of that around the world. And so anything I do, I feel like represents Israel no matter where I am. Well, I think it's incredible that you have aligned yourself. Um, I mean, there's a natural alignment. You didn't have to do anything. You're just, by virtue of having experienced this this trauma, this attack, you are now connected with with everyone else in the world, Jew and non-Jew alike, who has experienced this. And I think cultivating that can only be helpful, not only therapeutically, but I think, you know, we're we're fighting a PR war here. Sure. Um, and, um, you know, so you're not just experiencing this as a Jew experiencing anti-Semitism from Palestinian terrorism, but as a human being experiencing terrorism, just like someone in Ireland or in some other country, like you said. When you saw the recent attacks by Hamas, I mean, uh, because the, the bomber on your bus was a professed Hamas activist, or part of the military wing, whatever it is, um, does that trigger anything? Like all this Hamas, Hamas, Hamas? Absolutely. So first of all, the, the I always say this, and I talk about this in the international realm. The boy that boarded my bus was 18 years old. He was indoctrinated and radicalized by Hamas. He was the eighth kid that year on a Palestinian soccer team that had been indoctrinated. And kids should be kids on the soccer field playing ball. They shouldn't be radicalized by terrorist organizations. And I talk about this often about this being a violation of his human rights, because who knows how amazing he could have been in the future if he had the ability to live his life instead of giving up his life where the ends don't justify the means. He didn't accomplish anything that day, except he injured over 100 of us and he murdered 17 innocent people. And with that, he impacted thousands of 
of people within the families of all these people. So to me, it's just a shame of what could have happened. Um, every time there's a terrorist attack anywhere in the world, I think most victims, at least those that are connected with other victims from other places, feel something. But when it's Hamas for me, it's especially hard because first of all, I... I know exactly what that person is going through and what that person is feeling, that the family that's been impacted, but also the fact that, you know, Hamas did this to me 18 years ago and they're still doing the same thing and there's no accountability and no one has stopped them. And it just amazes me that in the world that we live in, we're in 2021, that the terrorists can still do what they're doing and the world doesn't come out against them. I saw very little in the world condemning Hamas. Oh, yeah. Were those rockets at Israelis, but 20% of those rockets that were supposed to go over to Israel ended up murdering innocent Palestinians. Right. No one talks about that. I think it was a thousand of the 4,000 rockets they fired uh, fell in in the Gaza Strip itself. Right. And, and and forget about the fact that they know purposely inviting Israel's response. What other what else should a, any country do other than respond to the point of origin of the attack, which are mosques, hospitals, community centers? And as much as Israel tries to drop leaflets and tell people to go, we just had a dinner for this past Friday night. We had an IDF soldier who was describing in detail what the IDF protocol is when they attack a building that they think could be innocents of the lengths to which they go. But they know, Hamas knows, and that's the sickness, is that they're not just out to kill Jews, they're out to use their own people to win the PR war because they know that we will respond and some of their own will die. And that's part of the cause. That's that's the greatest thing they can do for Allah. It's uh, it's unbelievable. You know, I mean, we just touched on something else now, you know, the first part of our discussion was how do we get the world to see Hamas for the evil that it is? Well, you just touched on something else, which is how do you get Hamas <laughs> to st- either to destroy it, which is probably the only real solution, unfortunately, but to stop indoctrinating those kids. For sure. Because that's really w- what the problem is. You can sign all the peace treaties you want. And unfortunately, it still exists in the PA as well. Right. The, the Palestinian authorities' textbooks are also filled with Jew hatred. Absolutely. So you can you can sign all the deals and shake all the hands. If the kids are still learning at a young age that Jews are evil, and 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 uh, Allah will reward you for killing as many of them as possible, it doesn't matter what kind of agreement we happen to have. Absolutely, yeah. and that's the problem. That's the problem. When the next generation is educated not to hate. Maybe there can be peace, but that, that the younger generation, I mean, there is an elective in school for kids to become, how to become a martyr. Like that should never be that in my mind, I don't understand how that happens. I mean, I would love to see, if you don't mind me just jumping, I would love, I would love to see some of those videos out there on Twitter and social media platforms. How do we get those? How do we ex- more expose? I mean, maybe I'm being naive, Sari. I'm thinking if more people saw what they were, if more people saw the indoctrination, then they would understand. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe it's just something. Well, I, I would agree with you, except that a number of years ago, I don't remember how it would have to be at least 10 years ago, if not longer, there was a New York Times article 
about the fact that there, this is where I read about this elective, that there was an elective in, in high school. And because it was so popular that during winter break, they had, they had a sort of like a camp for kids who wanted to do this. Right. Um, so I, and no one said boo about it. Like I was in the New York times and nobody cared. So I kind of feel like it falls on deaf ears. And unfortunately, you know, in the places that should be able to take control of this and do something like the United Nations or, um, or the the UN peacekeepers, or the the international groups, the you know the human rights organizations. None of them talk about this stuff, and none of them even like you know a perfect example of this would be you know when when Gilad Shalit was released in 2012. There were over there were over 1,400 terrorists that were released during that during that prisoner swap, and one of them was this woman. Uh, named Tamimi, who not only not only drove the terrorists to carry out the Sparrows terrorist attack in Jerusalem on August 9th, 2001, in which a number of Americans were murdered, including a woman who was five months pregnant, an American, but she, she picked the destination based on the fact that she knew a lot of Jews went to this, went to Sparrows. And she was released during the deal. And I will tell you that I remember... At, we we actually wrote a letter to Netanyahu from our from our organization signed by dozens and dozens of victims, not even Jewish victims from all over the world, from Kenya, from Uganda, from Argentina, um, from from France, from from Spain. You name it, we had victims from all the different countries. We, we, we work with over 14 different countries that are impacted by terrorism with organizations on the ground. We had victims sign on from all those different countries, and we begged and pleaded with Netanyahu that when they did the prisoner swap, not to let out anyone who had American blood on their hands. That's what we were asking. If there is a terrorist that, that murdered any American citizens, we were asking for them not to be released because we didn't want Tamimi released. And she's now in Jordan, and she um, runs a television show teaching children about becoming martyrs. And this is acceptable. And while she, while she has been indicted here in the U.S., and there is, we do have an extradition treaty with Jordan, they will not extradite her here to put her on trial for the murder of the and, and injury of, of many, many people, but including Malky Roth, um, who is 15 years old, an American citizen. Her mother is an American citizen. Her father's Australian. Um, and Shoshana Greenbaum, who was five months pregnant from Long Island. Um, the, um, the, have, have administrations pressed the Jordanians for her extradition? So... In the past, there there was a little, there wasn't much pressure. What happened? She wasn't. She was only indicted under the previous administration. That was the first time. So since 2012, she she was indicted. I think in 2000, maybe 17 or 18. Could be before that. I can't remember exactly when, but it, it was from the previous administration. Um, and but they, we, even though we have this extradition treaty, they they won't extradite her. And I've asked the State Department about it, and I really get very little answers from it. But it's it's not like an it's are, are there Jewish groups pushing for her extradition, pushing members of there Congress? Have been, absolutely. There are people working behind the scenes and there are some of the family members pushing for this. But unfortunately, it has fall. I don't know. I mean, I don't know all the details. And and I hope that there's continuous push for this because, you know, this need, this should be a symbol. She should be brought back here and put on trial for the murder, uh, the murders of yeah. those innocent people. Were you involved at all with the Taylor Force Act? 
So I wasn't involved with the tale first. I have actually sat on a panel, panel, uh, sorry, a panel with um, with Stuart Force, and we we met a few years ago at an, an event that I did with the Middle East Forum, um, and and he's incredible. But I really didn't get so I don't really get into the political side of of the of the kind of legislation. What I really do is if I meet with politicians, it's really to discuss the long-term needs of victims and their families and to make sure that American victims are getting what they need. And the reason for that is because in the State Department, there is an office called the Office of Justice for Overseas Victims. And this is a support this is um, medical support or psychological support for American victims who have been um, in attacks outside the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've been in a terrorist attack in the U.S., you are there's no way for you to actually get support through this office. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about Boston Marathon. You're talking about 9-11. You're talking about San Bernardino. You're talking about Pulse Nightclub, which their anniversary was actually this past Saturday was five years. So mm-hmm. if it's an if it's a, an attack that happened on US soil, um you this this specific office is only for Americans of overseas terrorism. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Often about why we can't change it and you know it's it's very complicated. Well any anyone who's listening to this, just so you if you're unfamiliar, I just asked Sari about the, the Taylor Force Act um was based on the, the killing of an American citizen, actually someone who uh fought in the U.S. Army, um, and uh, Stuart Force was the dad, who actually was honored at an MGE dinner through my good friend Sander Gerber, and uh, that was trying to defund the Palestinians to the same amount of money that they give to incentify Palestinian terrorism. Uh, the Palestinian Authority was, was demonstrated that they were giving X amount of money per family, incentivizing uh, martyrs to perform um, you know, acts of terrorism because their families, after they would be killed or imprisoned by the Israelis, would receive an enormous amount of money for the rest of their lives. This is going on for years. Yes. So the tail force was was uh, cut into that very, very beautifully. Let's talk a little about the therapy, though. Um, I just want to comment yeah. one thing, Robert, while yeah. just so you know, for people to be aware that the money that this current administration just sent over to the Palestinians, most of that was used to help carry out the rocket attacks and the pay for slay program to continue, meaning the terrorists of my attack, the family is still receiving money from what he did. But hold up. But Biden said, I don't know if it's true, but Biden said yeah, great. during the attacks that the money is going to be giving to the Palestinian Authority, not to Hamas. I understand what he's saying, but unfortunately, and I've actually spoken to members of Congress and also members of Parliament in the UK, they don't have accountability of where the money goes once it goes over there. They have no idea what happens to it. So I would like to know from President Biden exactly how he's going to be able to definitively say that that money is going towards the Palestinian people, because I highly doubt it. 60% of money that's sent over to help the Palestinian people goes directly to the pay for slave program. 60% 60% of it, and I think it's more than that. Pay for slay within, within the Palestinian Authority, not Hamas. Within the Palestinian Authority. Right. Because the Palestinian Authority, what I was confused about is that during the missile attacks, or right afterwards when Biden committed monies to help rebuild um, Gaza, right? Okay, he says, but we're not going to give the money to Hamas, we're going to give it to the PA. Which makes sense. But on yes, the other hand, one the but, same. don't think the PA and Hamas don't work together and don't think that the PA is getting that money and Hamas is not getting any part of it. They're not at they're not fighting with each other. I mean, they fight about certain things. But at the end of the day, they want they have the same goals. 
Okay. I appreciate that. And that's upsetting. I mean, I guess that's why Trump just completely cut it off, cut off the funding. Uh, you know, the question is, is there a way to make sure, I mean, Israel gives aid to the Palestinians right. in Gaza. I saw the truckloads of, you know, I always like to think of this, you know, when I, when I see somebody on the streets of New York, so the Torah says, you're supposed to open your hand when somebody, how do you know the person isn't going to use it for drugs? They're not going to this, they're not going to that. So my parents always taught me to uh, carry food around. Can't ever go wrong. So even if the guy is spending money on drugs and everything, so I gave him a sandwich. I, I bought him a bowl of soup. I, I have no problem. I can live with myself. I just don't like if I give somebody $5, he spends it on a pack of cigarettes or something even worse. So I'm just wondering is like, you know, maybe maybe the lobbying effort should be the United States sends in humanitarian aid, period. No money because money is fungible and you can do you can buy weapons with money. But, you know, you can't really weaponize peanut butter. So I'm just thinking, I, I don't know why why countries can't just do that and say, if we don't trust you to use the money to build up your uh, actually infrastructure and to feed the poor, and you're going to use it to buy more rockets. I mean, you know how much those rockets must have cost? 4,000 rockets? Even if they're not the most sophisticated, it's an enormous amount of money. Totally. And, the, and the tunnels? All right, but I want to, I want to switch gears for a minute. Um, you're involved in so sort of the therapeutic aspect. I don't know if you personally... Um, how, how has, how have you been able to be helpful, um, to people that have experienced trauma? Well, first of all, I mean, you know, strength to strength started in 2012 and we started running programs to bring victims together with peer to peer support. It's really important that people connect, um, you know, not only to get, you know, the, the psychological help they need from professionals, but even more so sometimes that one-on-one with somebody who really understands what you've been through. Um, but through COVID, since last April, we've been running weekly, um, weekly support groups for any of our members who want to attend. We've had um, cooking demos. We've had art classes. We've had um, self-care workshops. Um, Zumba classes, we had a virtual retreat for some of our members, and we're just constantly engaging people to try and make sure that people are connected. And I think that's the most important thing is for somebody who has been impacted by terrorism to be able to talk with somebody else that has been through the same thing that they've been through. Mm -hmm. Um, And many, many of our members will say that what's helped them the most is not the therapist that they've seen but the person that they met that went through something similar in a different country that can relate to their fears and what they're going through. And we not only do this for adults, we do this for young people as well. You know, uh, young people ages 14 to 20, we run a program called our Young Ambassadors Program where we bring kids from about eight to nine different countries together in New York for a week. And they get to share their experiences with each other, what they've been through, and they build a global peer support group. And I can tell you that those kids are in touch, but I'm in, you know, we're in touch with the kids. Our, Our trauma experts, on the program, our staff that comes in on the program. We're all in touch with these participants because we know that no matter what the age is, no matter what the cultural differences or the religious differences, we all have experienced terrorism and that just bonds us in a way like we could be in the same room and not say anything and we know what the other person is feeling. Mm-hmm. So so besides the, the, let's say, individual therapy that someone who's experienced the trauma of a terrorist attack a person will need that, I assume. Sure. Um, but you're saying just as important 
is being with other people that have experienced similar traumas. Absolutely. Especially yeah. on anniversaries. It's important, you know, that we, we do, I mean, we've been with the, the, the London bombings anniversaries coming up in, in July, July 7th was 2005 mm -hmm. was the, was the coordinated um, train attacks and the double decker bus bombing in London. And um, while they're doing last year, they did a virtual ceremony. We had, we had a zoom room open for them all day with different, different people, either a trauma expert or myself in each of the individual rooms to be there in case somebody came in and needed some kind of support. And those that were in the different areas. So like, let's say there was somebody who was at the Edgeware um, train attack. Mm -hmm. There was a room there for anyone in Edgeware to go in and see each other because every year on the anniversary, usually at 845 in the morning in London, everyone meets at the site of where one of those four sites Wow. And so they couldn't do that last year. So we set up that they can't meet in person, at least they're over Zoom. And then we and then they did a virtual ceremony that everyone watched in the Zoom room together that was on YouTube that anyone could watch. And then we left the room open all day with trauma, uh, trauma experts in there in case people needed support or wanted to talk to each other. And we've done this for multiple anniversaries. The Oklahoma City bombing survivors um, did a Zoom with us this past, uh, this past uh, anniversary. We did one and last year um, we opened up for our Boston Marathon survivors. We did a last year Zoom for them. Wow. They didn't want one, but we'll do it. Whatever anyone needs, we will make it happen. And a lot of our programming is survivor driven. So if a member says to us, we'd really like to do this, we'll make it happen for them. Um, so we're just, again, connection is really important all throughout the year, but even on the anniversary. And, and, and an even bigger example is one of our members, unfortunately, was recently diagnosed um, you know, with some, with, uh, with, with, with something and everybody is running to this person's aid from all over. You know, I oh. saw comments from the UK and comments from Oklahoma city and comments from Boston and people are just, you know, they're connecting and saying, I saw from Israel, like people are saying, what can I do to help you? How can I be there for you? And would you say that's the number one, like what psychologically enables some to say, um, you know, I, I can't get over this. Uh, this is just going to be the end of me um, and others who continue to have fruitful lives. Um, like, is this it? Is it, or it really just depends on the person or, and the experience they had. It's not a one size fits all. I always say that, mm -hmm. um, you know, everyone deals with it differently, but I also want to be clear and say this because I think that it, it's, it's important to understand that you never get over this. You learn how to cope with it going forward and certain people have better coping abilities or have have gained those coping skills needed to do this, whereas other people can't. Um, but I don't think, you know, a lot, we talk about this a lot about comments that people make, you know, that really are just a little insensitive sometimes, you know, like, aren't you over that already? Or why can't, why don't you just get past it? Or especially for a bereaved family member, you know, to hear, they're gone. It's been so long, but they never get over it. When you lose a loved one to terrorism, when you lose a loved one in general, it's hard to get over it. When you lose a loved one to a manipulative, planned, calculated evil, 
I don't know that anyone ever gets over that. You learn how to move forward and live your life the best you can based on, you know, how what, what's going on in your life. But I do find that people at different times are dealing with a lot of different psychological things, especially a month before an anniversary. Every, I don't know any victim that a month, at least a few weeks before their anniversary are not feeling some sort of anxiety or just feeling, especially over the last year with COVID and the lack of that personal interaction with people. You know, anniversaries are tough, but, you know, I think that at some point everybody is dealing with it, even if they try not to deal with it. And some people try not to deal with it and they try and push it aside. But at some point, something is going to happen, unfortunately, that will trigger that trauma that initially happened, even if you try, you can't run away from it. Um, and I believe very much in that dealing with it head on, making sure you get the support you need, whether it's psychological, whether it's, you know, whether it's medicine, whatever people need to help them to get better and to be in a better place. But then I think ultimately it's about connecting with others that have been in that, in the same experience to be able to help you. And I think that it's about a time thing. Not everybody runs to connect with somebody right away. I never push anybody. I always say, you know, you're welcome to come to our events. We've had people that wouldn't come right away. I'm thinking of a friend right now. She wouldn't come right away. And then she started coming and she came to one of our weekend retreats and she, and she can't imagine how she didn't do it sooner. Because now she has this whole network of supportive people. We're all on WhatsApp together. And so- she can WhatsApp anybody, no matter what she's feeling, good or bad. You know, we share the good and the bad things. You know, everyone, we share the happy moments with each other. We share the difficult moments. I think that's why it makes us sort of like a family, because we are sharing those situations with each other, you know, and this person, you know, didn't want to come in the beginning. And I'm so glad that she came and that she's a part of our organization because she brings so much in her insight. But before she came, she didn't realize what she was missing or how much she needed that support because her attack was so long ago. And when she was in the terrorist attack, there wasn't any support and there was minimal people that understood what she went through. It was before 9-11. So for her, she didn't realize how much she needed, I think, until she started coming. Wow. You know, just to sort of end this part of our discussion, and because I, I just want to ask you one last question, just going back to Israel. But, you know, there's a famous verse, you're familiar with it, Imo Anochi Bitsara, I am with you in your pain. You know, sometimes we don't have an answer. Um, we don't have a solution. But, you know, I know that after my mother passed many, many years ago, it became, I think, easier for me to provide some sort of solace to other people who lost parents, right? And not because I had any brilliant new advice. It's just simply because I went through what they went through. Right. And I think what we're, what we're hearing from you, Sari, is that, is that um, you are in a very unique position because you've been through this experience to be able to help. Um, and when I say counsel, it, it, not necessarily any specific advice more than just, I know what you're going through. Right. And, there, and there's just something about the human condition when you're with someone else who you feel has been through that. Um, it just, it, it, it's, it lifts, it lifts something somehow. And, and I always say, Rabbi Wilds, I always say that I had no control over what happened to me that day, but I have control over how I live my life going yeah. forward. Well, that I mean, is, uh, that's, that's Rev Salvatrix's approach. Why bad things happen to good people. We never ask why, cause we'll never get an answer to that, but we can ask what, and you, Sari, have done something really, really amazing with it. Um, if there's one celebrity who you would love to speak positively about Israel, 
or Judaism. <laughs> uh, and, and, and you could blast it out on social media and everywhere else. Who would it be? I don't know if that's a fair question. Oh my our, our good friend Alan Zeitlin shared that question with me. I just that thought it was really interesting. Like if you could pick one celebrity, one individual, you know, who could be like, um, you, you mean know. that's that's not pro-Israel, that's sort of that I would want to speak to? <laughs> yeah, that would then be could be a wonderful advocate, you know. Because, Honestly, you're gonna laugh at who I'm thinking of. <laughs> because whoever it is, then let's get to work. Um, I really would like to talk with what's his name, Russell Brandt. Is that his name? Yeah. <laughs> I think he's great. He is constantly sure. talking about yeah. the Palestinians, and I want to correct him on so many things. And I really only came to see, I didn't know he did a podcast. Somebody sent it to me and said, You have to hear what he's saying. And look, I ha I've never really seen his movies, but I know who he is. Um, I would love to have a conversation with him and really. I didn't even know. My kids listen to him. He's got a podcast now. He's very popular. He's he's uh, he's very vocal about Palestinians. I yes. did not know that. I, I, I somebody sent it to me. I was in shock. All right, um, so let's let's get to him. Um, yeah, let's bring him on the podcast. And uh, he's a funny guy, and he's you know very he's a brilliant guy, and he's like um, super you know. Um, been through a lot of interesting stuff himself. All right, that's that's <laughs> ambitious. It's ambitious. I told you you're gonna laugh. <laughs> it's definitely ambitious. Um, I, I think it would be great if we could, uh, you know, uh, a lot of one of the best things APAC has done is bring members of Congress and elected officials from all over the world. My brother's a mayor in Englewood, I think you know that. And he went with 30 other mayors from throughout the world on a trip to Israel. Going to Israel, I think is, would be, let's get, let's, MG's going the first week in July. If you want to see if Russell wants to join us, wow. I'm happy, I'm happy to have him. <laughs> um, <I'm good> <laughs> we are still, anyone who's listening to this, we're still taking some people, but we just, uh, we're really excited. We're going from July 3rd to uh, July 11th for about eight days. Yeah. To Israel, it's we we lost, we missed it last year. Now we uh, we thank God have it. Um, I want to thank you, Sari, for not simply answering my questions, but um, for being such an inspiration. You've always been an inspiration to me. You've taken a very difficult situation in your life, and you've done something very beautiful and powerful with it. You've brought health and healing to people in pain, and you've shined a, a very positive light on a very dark issue of our time of terrorism to be able to let the world know what's going, what people who experience terrorism go through and how uh, we need to continue to support democracies and other world powers that are on the right side of this war. Um, and um, I, I, I commend you for devoting your life to this, for speaking at these rallies. Um, if anybody would like to get involved with strength to strength, um, please, who, who should they speak to, Sari? Well, they, can either, they can go to our website. It's stosglobal.org, or they can reach out to you and you can put them yep. in touch with us. And we would 100%. love to have, you know, we're all volunteers. The entire organization are all volunteers. We all have full-time jobs. We're mostly survivor-driven. And uh, we can always use more help in the work that we're doing. That's amazing. Hashem should continue to bless you and your amazing efforts on behalf of the Jewish people and really on behalf of the world. What you're doing is a world issue and uh, you should just continue to do it in good health and success. And 
we should just find more and more people like yourself to stand behind Israel and really to stand behind the people who need the support and the love. Uh, Sari, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank and, you for um, having me. It is a pleasure and an honor, really, really. Thank you so much. My pleasure and my honor. So thank you so much. A pleasure. All right, take care. Have a good one. You too. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.